Good morning, church. Thanks for, thanks for, you guys actually say that back. That's really cool. I wasn't ready for that. I love it. Um, hey, thanks for having me here today. Um, I just want to continue um, to uh, take opportunities just to thank you all for the, all the ways that you've partnered uh, with us at Rooted Church over the last few months. Um, specifically this morning, I just want to say thanks. Um, if you were, I know you guys had a special meeting last week and you all um, sent a few representatives to the Spring River annual meeting um, and, and they were very supportive of us. Um, and I, I just wanted to thank you for that. We, we joined the Spring River Baptist Association by a unanimous vote last week. And, um, and I just really appreciated uh, First Baptist being there and, and supporting us in that way. Um, so I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. This morning, uh, it's my, my privilege, my honor uh, to get to fill in uh, for Jeremiah and give uh, your team a, a break for a week. Um, I'm going to be preaching this morning from Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verse 5 and 6 this morning. We're going to be talking about what it means to be a people who are content in the gospel. And so I will read those verses to you and then pray and, uh, and we'll open up. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? Lord, I, I just, I ask you, um, I echo the prayer of Brian um, this morning. Lord, would we uh, receive your word clearly? Would you open our hearts and our minds um, that we might um, not only have knowledge, but that we might experience change by your power through your word? I ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. As a people living in an age of ever-increasing anxiety, Verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews have enormous implications for us. In verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews is giving kind of these final instructions to the people of God as he's concluding this letter. And in verses 1 through 4, which we won't talk about today, but I'll go over briefly, we see a radical picture of the Christian life. As Christians, we are compelled to love in an extraordinary way. In verse 2, the author of Hebrews has told the church, you are to welcome strangers. And the context of that is that at that time, Christians, you know, there weren't Airbnbs or hotels. And so Christians had to travel. Uh, when they had to travel, they had to depend on inns as a place to stay. But often innkeepers could be very corrupt because they might be the only inn for hours. Um, and so it might take a day's journey to come to another inn. So they were known for taking advantage of the generosity of Christians. And so the church is being told, you welcome those strangers. You welcome brothers and sisters. And so this is a call to love the church beyond the walls upon, uh, in, in which we sit. Then the church is told in verse 3 to care for prisoners. And when it's talking about prisoners, it's, it's certainly talking about people who are in prison for traditional reasons. But specifically here, he's talking about, again, Christians who have been, are being mistreated and have been put in prison for wrong reasons. And is saying, essentially, care for the believers who can't be in the midst of the normal rhythms of the church for whatever reason. And then he tells the church to hold marriage in high esteem. That we're to reflect Christ's love for his church and the way in which we love our spouse. In all of these things, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is what Christ-like love should look like from the church. But then in verse 5, we are instructed as to what we are not to love. When it says, keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have. 
In American culture, we've been taught to build our lives around money and all that it can acquire for us. From a young age, we're confronted with the question of what is your plan to acquire money? What do you want to be when you grow up? And then we are given a picture from a young age of what it means, like what you should do with that wealth that you acquire, what it means to live out the American dream. Yet in no way did money guide the life of Jesus Christ. And it certainly did not define him the founder and perfecter of our faith. So this passage, these two verses, they show us that just as we reflect Jesus by welcoming the stranger, caring for the rejected, and keeping our marriage covenant, so we testify of Christ when we live lives content, free from the obsession with money that the world has. Maybe more than any other temptation we face, This has to be considered one of the hardest things the Lord calls us to, and Jesus pulled no punches on acknowledging that to be true. Notice how the author defines one who is free of loving money as being one who is content. This term content is defined as to be in a state of satisfaction, and the opposite of contentment is discontent or lack of satisfaction. Now, being discontent can be a healthy thing. For example, I might be discontent with my health, and that leads me to make the changes that I need to. I can have a lack of contentment in my job, which might be a positive thing if it inspires me to take a bold step and do something to better provide for my family. I might experience a lack of contentment in my marriage, and even that can be positive if it leads me to repent of sin and to fight for healthier rhythms alongside my spouse. However, when my discontent is birthed from longing for something else in such a way that it surpasses my longing for Jesus, then at that moment, my disconnect has, my discontent has given birth to covetousness. And our culture is designed to produce discontent and to fuel covetousness. And just this past week, I was watching a football game, and a car commercial came on. It was a commercial for Carvana, which is a play on the term Nirvana, which means a state of perfect happiness. And this commercial, which I'm sure you've seen, it opens to a Carvana truck driver delivering a car. And he turns his head to the audience, and he says, You may have heard that Carvana sells cars online, but what you probably didn't know is that we're in the business of making you happy. And as he finishes that line, you see a customer waiting eagerly on the curb, jumping up and down in excitement as their new car is delivered, halo on top and all. Now I have nothing against Carvana. Seems like a really smart business model. But there's no hidden message here. They're not trying to hide what it is they are selling. They've actually decided, let's not hide it. Let's just put it right out there in front. Carvana realizes that what most of their customers, not all, but what many of their customers are looking for is not an economical tool that they need to transport their family or accomplish their work tasks. They aren't even looking for something fun in particular. What most of their customers are looking for is happiness. Look at what your neighbor has and how much better it is than what you have. You could have this too and the happiness that it provides All that requires is money. While this is a new example, 
Covetousness has always existed. Long ago, the farmer coveted the land that belonged to his neighbor, and David coveted the wife that belonged to another. However, in our moment in history, technology has made covetousness a staple of society. Every billboard, every Facebook ad, every commercial, every app on your phone, each and every day, your contentment is challenged like never before in history. Thus, as a people of God, we must guard our hearts like never before in history. The author of Hebrews says, just as loving holy things reveals the condition of our heart, so does loving earthly things. When we love and long for earthly things and the money that gives us the power to obtain them more than we do heavenly things, we are living in direct contrast to the ways of God. Just a few sections back from this text, the author uh, writes about the scene at Mount Sinai where God delivered the law through the Ten Commandments. And he describes this holy scene. He says the ground rumbled and there was a pillar of smoke that rose above the mountain. And the people were terrified to even approach the mountain. Like the, the awe and holiness of God just radiated from the mountain and shook the land. These commandments that God gave, they gave man a a glimpse of God's holiness. And they also provided some broad guidelines as how we are to live. And now we learn those commandments from a young age. And the first nine of those commandments are unique from the tenth and that they are outwardly observable. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. I can visually see if you commit these acts. Something has physically happened. And the legalist can even find solace in kind of creating a religious checklist out of the first of the nine commandments. Well, I haven't killed anybody today. I haven't stolen anything today. But you can't hide from the tenth commandment. Do not covet. The tenth is most often broken when nobody else can see it, and maybe nobody else even knows about it. In this way, the command to not covet is a divine blow to our attempts at self-righteousness. Joe Rigney once wrote of covetousness, covetousness wants what the other guy has. Envy is angry that the other guy has it. Covetousness is oriented towards your neighbor's possessions, envy towards the man himself. Another way to understand what Joe is saying is that envy moved Saul to keep trying to assassinate his neighbor David in 1 Samuel 19. Covetousness moved David to steal his neighbor's wife and then murder him as a covenant, as a cover-up in 2 Samuel 11. In Colossians 3 and 5, we see that both envy and covetousness are two of several siblings that share the same source. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, which includes envy, and covetousness, which is idolatry, this text says. When my heart is moved to covet, it is ultimately moved to be dissatisfied in Jesus Christ. In that moment of longing, I am taken back to the garden where my mother became entranced by the desire and false promise of the object which belonged solely to God. My mother Eve, she was so blinded by covetousness that she could no longer see the glory and the abundance of gifts that God had provided for her 
And like Gollum, she was fixated solely on the object of her idolatry. The enemy that whispered that lie into her ear continues to whisper it in mine today because I have inherited her fallen nature and I am prone to the same tendencies. And the good news is that God knew this. He knew this when he walked through the garden looking for Adam and Eve. He knew it when he delivered the law to Moses. He knew it as David gazed at the woman bathing, and he knew it about you and I long before he formed us in our mother's womb. And so he sent his son. Jesus enters the world of enslaved idolaters, and he beckons us to be free. It's the call of the first disciples. What does he ask of the first disciples when he approaches them there on the seashore? They're there, they're fishing, they've got their boats. They're, all of their security is sitting there on the shore by the sea. It's the family business, it's how they get an income, and it's their identity. Like that's who they were. They were fishermen. That's where they fit in society. And Jesus comes to them and says, walk away from all of that. What Jesus is actually asking the disciples is trust me. Trust me to provide for you. Trust in the identity that I will give you. Walk away from everything else and trust me. This is the same thing that he offers the rich young ruler. Yet we see a very different result. What's funny about the, the, the command to not love money is that Oftentimes throughout church history, we're willing to overlook that sin. We're, over to, we're willing to overlook the 10th commandment as long as you give to the church, you know? Like the rich young ruler was kind of the ideal church member, if you think about it. He's a, he's a young guy. He's got a good job, obviously. He probably ties. I mean, I'm sure he would serve on all the committees. I mean, many of us, if we're honest, we would welcome him with open arms. Yet Jesus sees to the heart of who he is, and he knows that no matter how religious this young man might appear, he loves money more than he loves anything about Jesus. He's intrigued by the gospel, certainly. He's intrigued by religion and faith. It's all very intriguing to him, but would he die to self and follow Jesus? And Jesus knows he wouldn't. The term that Jesus uses to call the rich young ruler is the exact same language he uses when he calls the disciples. And it's the language he uses when he calls all of us. Will you trust in me? This is also the stark warning that Jesus preached to the masses in Matthew 19, 24. When he says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that word from Jesus has always been striking to me. And it begs the question, why does the love of money make it so difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven? It makes it so much easier to do everything this side of eternity, but why does it make it so difficult to enter the kingdom? And the author of Hebrews seems to hint at that today. To live free of the love of money, to be content with what we have, is to live without fear. And this is a, this concept of, what it, of, of why money makes it so difficult to enter the kingdom is an important question for a room full of some of the richest people in the world 
to contemplate. You might not think of yourself that way, but if you live in America and you're able to live here and you have a job, you are actually amongst the richest people in the world. So we must consider this seriously. To be content with what we have requires us to be a people who live without fear, confidently declaring the anthem of verse 6, where the author says he beckons us to live out this truth, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? In this, we see that the desire to covet money is commonly tied to fear. In the early 1800s, the world was forever changed by the invention of the telegraph. Tom Sandage is a historian who has called the telegraph the Victorian internet. And the telegraph, you might not think about it much now, but it changed the world. All of a sudden, man had the ability to communicate across continents, and the excitement around the globe was palpable. Optimistic leaders declared that this technological advancement would unite the globe, it would end wars, and it would create a truly global community. However, Tom Sandage, in writing of this age, notes, the information supplied by the telegraph became like a drug to businessmen who quickly became addicted to it. He notes that around the world, many people's lives began to be wrapped around the news that the telegraph provided, and thus they were kept in a continual excitement without time for quiet or rest. While the telegraph was invented in the 1800s, it really didn't begin to pick up steam till the second half of the century. Technological advancements tend to move slower in that time. Western Union reported that messages sent over its, in line, over its lines increased from 5.8 million in 1867 to 63.2 million in 1900. And this period of history is often called the Golden Age or the Beautiful Era because of the stability, comfort, and technological advance of that time. However, while the Victorian internet gave people access to gr greater access to information than ever before, history tells us that it also produced a form of cultural anxiety such as the world had never seen before. All of a sudden, it wasn't the events in one's own town or one's own tribe or even one's own neighborhood that affected their security, but it was things that were happening all over the globe, and the world had not had the ability to know about all of that so quickly up until this point. And this cultural anxiety, it certainly fueled ingenuity. There's no question about that. Culturally, people were no longer satisfied to merely provide for their families, but they wanted to thrive so that they could be secure. Some scholars say that that time in history was kind of where the middle class was born. Yet while, anxiety, while this kind of anxiety fueled development, it was also a period in time where several mental health diagnoses were born for the first time. The irony here is that this period in our history of prosperity and comfort, in the midst of it, people somehow found themselves more anxious and fearful. And church historians have long noted that the church was no exception to this phenomenon. On the state of this, the church during that time period, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, Never forget the pride and arrogance of the church in the 19th century. Behold her sitting back in self-satisfaction, enjoying her so-called cultured sermons and learned ministry. 
Observe the prosperous Victorian comfortably worshiping, enjoying his worship. How constantly he denied the spirit of the New Testament. John Pollock is a renowned Christian biographer, and he described the church during this time as slowly suffocating in an atmosphere of introspection and gloom. Fervent Christians groaned and gloried in unceasing inner conflict. Consider those words for a minute. During this period, when the church experienced this season of comfort, likely unlike anything the church had experienced up to this point, the morale seemed to fade as the church reflected the anxiety of the culture. The spirit-fueled age of the great cloud of witnesses, which the Hebrews refers to. He, the author of Hebrews has just got done sharing all of these stories of the faithful saints who came before and endured. All of a sudden, that seems like a distant land compared to this so-called age of enlightenment. The truth is, the church seemed to lose its power in that season because it became unimpressed with the power of God. A power that they could hold in their hands and they could read over breakfast or a power that they could go just simply withdraw from the bank. That power surpassed the power that split the Red Sea because this power was void of actually having to be dependent. Just like Adam and Eve, just like the Israelites creating a golden calf at the base of the mountain, just like Babel, we do not want to be dependent. That is why it is so difficult for those who love money to enter the kingdom of God. Because the, 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 what it takes to enter the kingdom cannot be bought, it cannot be earned, but it requires a full dependence on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is why covetousness of money or possession or security is a root that must be plucked from the soul of every believer. And that is why Jesus did not hesitate to let this talented young man turn and walk away. Because the cure for this ailment, the key to being content with what you have, is to first and foremost be content in Christ and all that he has purchased for you through his shed blood. And the means by which you can access the power for contentment is in believing the promise of verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If God will never leave me, if he will never forsake me, then I do not need to depend on money as the source of my security and certainly not as the source of my happiness. My father, the great creator king, who the psalmist tells me owns the cattle on a thousand hills, is for me. Now, my loving king father, he doesn't promise me wealth or success. And if anybody ever tells you he does, they are a liar and, and you should turn and walk the other way because that just doesn't reflect the truth of Jesus. Jesus had broken relationships, experienced incredible pain, and he was dependent on other people to give him a place to sleep and to provide him food to eat. The Lord himself faced financial difficulty as he walked upon this earth. But Jesus knew the love of the Father. And what the Father does promise us is that in the midst of whatever comes, he will be there and he will always be enough. 
Because God so loved the world, knowing fully what we were capable of, knowing fully that we would cling to other forms of security, he never ceased to love us. And he sent his only son to live a life that was the drastic opposite of that. Jesus never coveted anything. He never doubted the father's love for a moment. He, was, he could not be bought despite the fact that many tried. He lived a perfect life and died a brutal death so that for us who are his, there's no longer condemnation from the Lord, but everlasting joy in Jesus Christ. And because that is true, he will always be enough no matter what we face. And not only is he enough no matter what we face, but he actually promises us that everything that we face as believers is conforming us to his very image. As we close this morning, I want to encourage you to believe, rest, and live in the assurance of this good news. If we believe the promise of verse 5, that God will never leave us nor forsake us, then we can confidently live out the anthem of verse 6, which tells us to confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now this verse, this verse looks great on a coffee cup or a bumper sticker. I'm sure if you go to Hobby Lobby right now, somewhere in really pretty letters, this verse is printed on something. But the truth is, this verse is actually quite hard to live out with any measure of real confidence. Take into consideration, the author of Hebrews just got done saying, he just got done referring to those who are in prison in verses 3, and he refers to them as those who are mistreated. So he's encouraging some people are missing from this church because they have been pulled into prison for wrong reasons, probably because of their faith or maybe because they just couldn't pay a debt, and they're being mistreated at the hands of man. So evidently, man can do something to me, <laughs> like evidently. But what is being communicated to these weary Christians is that these things that seem so terrible, prison, mistreatment, loss of possession, this is all the world can do. They can only take away the physical, but the physical is not the source of our assurance. They can drain your savings account. They can take away your retirement. They can crash the Wall Street. But that is not where your inheritance lies. If God is for me, then man really has no power over me. All the dangers that man is capable of causing, all the chaos that my phone is constantly chiming to let me know about, none of it will change one iota of what the Lord has done for me in Christ. And in a time where I have so much access to information about the calamities of the world, I have so much more than those of the golden age. They had no idea what we would acquire. Like, I carry something a million times more powerful than the telegraph in my back phone and use it to play Angry Birds. Like, they had no idea. In a time such as this, I need to be constantly reminded of who I am. And this declaration in verse 6, it comes from Psalm 118.6. And it points to the truth that real contentment comes only when we trust in God to meet our needs and to be our source of security. At Rooted, I always ask our people, 
to consider four questions when they look at any text. If you don't know how to study the Bible, if you open your Bible and you're like, I, I just don't know what to do with this, I would challenge you with the same. When you, open, you can open up the Bible to any place. And when you do, ask these four questions. Based on this text, based on what I just read, who is God? What has he done? Who am I? So how should I live? And when we consider this phrase from Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Who is God? He is not only my creator, but he is my helper. The God who spoke the universe into existence tells me to live content, free from the love of money, and that he, through his power, is going to help me do that. That's amazing. Like, he spoke the galaxy into existence, and he declares himself my helper. I'm uncomfortable even reading that. You can't be my helper. Just like, you can't wash my feet. You can, and he will, and he does. And what has he done? He has promised to never leave or forsake me. Just next month, we'll begin Advent season. And Advent season, we'll remember that God's kind of whole thing, he's known for keeping his promises, <laughs> that he promised to redeem his people, and he did, that he promised that he would come, and he did, and that we know he will come again, and we acknowledge at Advent season that God makes promises, and he keeps them, and he has promised never to leave me or forsake me. So who am I? I am an heir of the Most High God, redeemed by Jesus. And how should I live? I will not fear because I just don't trust in worldly things. I'm an heir to the kingdom of heaven. The worst the world can do to me is death. That's it. And my Redeemer has redeemed death. Now he actually uses death all the day long. Everything dies. Everything I trust in, everything that means something to me, like it all ends. God uses death to bring new life all the time. It's what he does. He's taken this thing that we're so fearful of, and he actually just takes it and holds it and carries it around and uses it to bring new life over and over and over again. When we take the seed and we put it in the ground to die, what happens? flower comes forth from the ground and every time that flower comes forth from the ground we are reminded that God was buried in the tomb to die and what came forth is the world's savior I you are not that savior thus I cannot bury I cannot burden carry the burdens of the world but Jesus can and I've been tasked with sharing that good news to the ends of the earth, beginning with my own heart each and every day. A few years ago, I saw one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. The film was called A Hidden Life. And this film tells the story of Franz Jagerstadter. I, I always say that really fast because I feel like if I say it fast and confidently, maybe it'll seem like I said it right. We'll just call him Franz. He was an Austrian farmer, and this beautiful film tells the story of him and his family who lived a simple life of faith on a farm in Austria. Until one day, when the Nazi army showed up, 
and required men in that community to fight for the Nazis and to swear allegiance to Adolf Hitler, both of which Franz was one of the only, if not the only man in his community to refuse to do either. So Franz is in a prison cell, and in an emotional scene, a major of the Nazi army offers Franz a final deal. Okay, like, we can't get you to say the words, fine. They offered him a sheet of paper. If you would, at this point, Franz has been starving. He hasn't seen his family in forever. He's been mistreated. He knows he'll never see his family again. All you have to do is just sign your name on this paper that we've put together, acknowledging your loyalty. And the major tells him, if you do this, you'll be released from the prison. You will be free. And history tells us that Franz's response to that offer was to say, I am already free. If you are a child of the Most High God, no matter what the world offers you, you are already free. You do not need freedom and the source of security. You do not need freedom uh, through the false promise of money. You need nothing other than the gospel that was given to you freely in Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning that we might know and believe that to be true. And if you don't know and believe that to be true this morning, I'd just love to tell you about Jesus and how he freed me and what he's done.